everyone, welcome back to Alt Centrism Central Podcast. We're with the long awaited second episode after many delays, but we're hoping to give you today a good episode. And as always, I'm your host, Boomer Ted Cruz, and with me is my co host who will introduce himself once again. I'm me, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And we also have our two distinguished uh, guest speakers today. First of all, we have uh, both of them are from a uh, very popular uh, news website called 71 Republic. We have uh, Mason, the editor in chief. Uh, please say hello. Tell us about yourself. Hello. I am actually not, in fact, the editor in chief. The co founder, right? Yes, I'm a co-founder, chief operations officer. Chief operations uh, officer. Yep, that's that's pretty much what I do. And yeah, that means I kind of just run the operations of the site, and I also like direct the direction of the content. So hopefully, I'll have some good stuff to contribute today. All right, thank you for being here. And Ellie. Hi, I'm a writer and reserve editor at Seventy One Republic, and I'm happy to be here. All right, well, thank you, all of you. Um, just a quick announcement. Uh, um, the topic that everybody voted on for episode two, which was political polarization, radicalization, and violence, had to be postponed because it was difficult to schedule the guest speakers that we wanted on it. It's not canceled. We will be doing that episode. Um, but instead, we are going to be doing uh, today's topic, which is the future of capitalism. Uh, I believe Peyton had some things he wanted to start off with. Yeah, I wanted to start out by saying that currently in the United States, while we're not a full-blown capitalist country, we are a mixed economy and heavily capitalistic Mm -hmm. in many areas. But a lot of questions have been risen with the rising of candidates that are self-described socialists and candidates that are for more government intervention in economy and moving forward and more into a mixed economy and even into a command economy we have to ask about the future of capitalism we have several candidates who want to save capitalism as well such as andrew yang who talks about his human-based capitalism and the increasing of keynesian policies to do so such as his freedom dividend so we kind of wanted to see what the opinion of those on the side of capitalism of what the future of capitalism is and how it could be saved or if it needs saving at all and i believe joe had his own definition of capitalism he wanted to present yeah uh let's get to that in a moment um ellie mason uh do either of you have some opening statements that you'd like to do i think with as far as the self-described socialist um, politicians go, I think I actually wrote an article about this socialism as defined by Marx is actually very hard to achieve. And I don't think America will ever, or any first world nation will ever will ever achieve socialism at unironically real socialism, you know? Yeah. To instate and 
when you have a nation as big as America or even as big as the Nordic countries, it's going to be very difficult to do in real life. All right, that's fair. Uh, Mason? Yeah, so really when it gets down to modern capitalism, like we've been doing this for a little bit, and it's really, like, you, you look at the last, like, I don't know, 50 or so years, and look at the graph of, like, wealth accumulation and technological development, and you can see that we're on a rise that is never paralleled in human history at any point. It's pretty insane, like, compared to the trend over all of human history, and then right now. So with that comes a lot of new questions, like, we have way more people now. How do we deal with that? Um, what are the consequences of everything kind of being commodified and uh, like capital being the way that the world works? Um, what are the consequences of this technological development? Like how is this interacting with human evolution, human biology? Um, and all of these are kind of answers or questions that need to be answered as we go into the future of capitalism because we're seeing a lot of things change and we don't quite know where to go yet. But I mean, that's kind of what humanity is for outsource the knowledge to like the decentralized masses and figure out what works in the future yeah that that's a it's a very interesting point because uh, around the time of the industrial revolution you know economics was fairly mainstream there, there weren't many uh, divergent theories other than you know opinions on how things should be done um, but most mostly people agreed I think uh, and one of the one of the biggest questions there was uh, what will population growth and technological development, uh, how will that affect capitalism? And so I think that's a really good point to bring up, and I think that we should definitely get more into that later on. Um, but now I think that we should uh, move on to defining exactly what capitalism is, that we all know what we're, uh, what each other's talking about. I'll go first. Um... And then everybody else can, uh, you know, tear me apart, criticize my definition, and give their own. Alright. So, I, I think that capitalism is the free exchange of goods or services. The trade is considered fair by all parties involved. There is no outside interference by parties not involved in the trade. There is no leverage or coercion involved in the trade. Um, and I, I think an important distinction to make is with capitalism and what I what I would call commercialism but you could give it any other name that you want to and I, I would say that commercialism is the illusion of free exchanges of, of goods or services the trade may not be considered fair by all parties involved maybe interference there may be leverage or coercion and the trade or exchange may be forced or there may be no other option uh, some forms that uh, commercialism can take are monopolies, deceiving contracts, unfair contracts, uh, forced taxation, and things like that. Right, I think that's a good definition. But when it gets down to it, like there are many, many definitions for capitalism. And when we're talking about the future of capitalism, we really have to look for the definition that will frame the discussion in a way that allows us to look pragmatically forward like we could define capitalism like kind of in the marxist sense like oh it's private ownership of the means of production like viewing it through that framework or like a super rough body and hoppian sense like oh it's a uh, corporations do everything 
like literally everything and that's that's the only real capitalism but when we're talking about the future of capitalism like i think we kind of need to look at the status quo of what it means to be a capitalist country um which is kind of like corporatist because there's money in politics there's politics in business and everything is kind of blended together so if we're going to talk about the future we need to look for a definition that encompasses this mess we're in which means we can't really look towards some i guess high theory definition that's brought up by like marx or rothbard somebody that doesn't exactly live in the here here and now and isn't exactly looking for the most pragmatic way forward um so yeah i i do think your definition is really good of like it's just the basic exchange of goods and resources um because that's pretty much what we have in society today but when it gets down to it i don't think that right there is really going anywhere um it's just like how can we adapt capitalism to the future i already said that um but yeah i'm just saying we should find the best definition possible for like ooh, what is the future of this thing contextualized to the status quo yeah that that's a great point and a great um transition into the rest of the episode um and you know something that I'll definitely consider with with my, with how I define capitalism. Um, Ellie, did you have anything you wanted to say about the definition of capitalism? This isn't necessarily about the definition, but I would say it's important to um, recognize and take into consideration how capitalism, the concept, and the result is perceived. Because at the end of the day, if everyone sees a what America is as, quote, pure capitalist, the definition is eventually going to change. The The goalpost is going to shift. And we have to look at how that's perceived and integrate that into the conversation. Well, that that's a great point, too. Um, Peyton, anything else? Yeah, I'll add that. I'm a big proponent of using the textbook definitions of words i think a lot of the time we get muddled when we come to more philosophical definitions of words and it kind of just becomes a debate over a definition of a word rather than the actual issues and as i see it i can see capitalism as being simply that there is private uh, ownership of countries trade and industry doesn't have to be entirely private ownership and uh, of the industries and the economy and the means of production, the means of distribution. But I think that a lot of people get muddled and think capitalism is the same thing as free market or laissez-faire, when in reality those are just types of capitalism. There's many types of capitalism, for example, mercantilism, which was practiced by many monarchies centuries ago was also technically a form of capitalism because there was private ownership of industries but there was still a lot of state involvement specifically the monarch in how the means of production were distributed and the means of distribution were distributed so I think when we're talking about capitalism I think we just need to focus on economies where private ownership of country's trade and industry is present and that's very broad and that includes most world economies but I think 
if we're going to talk about specific types like free market free enterprise which is typically what is introduced by libertarians and some in the republican party there are others in the republican party who claim to be for free enterprise and laissez-faire but their policies speak otherwise but i think um when we're talking about capitalism going forward i'd love to focus mostly on the u.s system based of capitalism which is somewhere in between which is like a mixed economy where the state owns parts, some industries, and some of the country's trade, and then private ownership takes up the rest of that slack. All right, uh, so like yeah, I think that's a good one going forward. Yeah, uh, so I think to sum things up, I think what we're going to be talking about is putting the uh, using more or less textbook definitions of capitalism, schools of thought, ideologies. And to put them into context, uh, which is, you know, the current day United States, uh, where we're going. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely talk about our interpretations of it, but in context of, uh, you know, how things are now and where we want to see them in the future, I, I suppose. And where we think realistically uh, things will uh, end up in the future. Um, so thank you. That, that's a... That's a great conversation, now that we all understand what we're talking about with capitalism. Um, so, on, on to the main topic. The big question, where is capitalism going in the future? How is it going to change? What's the future going to look like? On that, I'd, to, I'd like to bring up most of the issues that actually caused us to even have a conversation about what's the problem with capitalism and where is its future um forever there have been marxists and socialists who have criticized capitalism as a system and mostly been on an ethical basis but they've never really been mainstream and they're still really not mainstream even if there are candidates such as bernie sanders who claim to be a socialist because they don't really argue from the philosophical and uh, point of view of the Marxist school of economics and Marxist theory. But I think we have come to a point where the American economy has a lot of problems associated with it, and we've had, you know, a recession that was almost so bad that it was going to be a depression and the only reason it wasn't called a depression is because economists said if we call it a depression we'll only make it worse because when it comes to the economy there's a lot of psychology that goes into that and if people perceive things as bad it's real the economy is going to do worse because of it and you know i think some of the biggest problems that are facing the system of capitalism in the United States right now is the fact that a lot of workers, for a lot of workers, wages are stagnating. They're not really growing. They're not really increasing by much. And a lot of people feel that the rich are the ones who are the only ones benefiting from our system when that was not always the case, when everybody benefited. And while I not personally on the side of that you know it's just the rich benefiting in our country this is one of the major issues 
Another major issue is that Pew Research Center shows that the middle class is shrinking in a sense. And uh, there's two graphs that we'll have provided in the video. But these two graphs show from 1971 to 2016, the share of the US economy that each class is. So in 1971, this middle class was 61% of the economy. In 2015, it was 50% of the economy. And then <clears throat> the uh, lower class in 1971 was 25%, while in 2015, it was 29%. And But the, something interesting about this is most people would look at this and see that Americans are getting poor. But as well, if we look at the graph, in 20, 1971, the upper class was 14% of the economy, and in 2015, they were 21%. And then another graph sh shows in 2016, they went down by one percentage point to 19%. But what's really interesting is this one graph from a current population survey that found that actually, um, the, num the share of poor and middle-class Americans both decreased from uh, 1979. And then in 2014, the rich and upper middle-class increased while the rest of them, uh, the rest of the classes decreased. And I think it's very interesting to talk about this because those are like the big issues that I think most people are critiques of capitalism at the moment is stagnating wages and the share of the economy that the middle class is so i kind of want your guys' opinions on if these are actual issues that capitalism is facing and how would they be fixed going forward uh, just real quick clarification clarification question on that um mm -hmm. even though the upper middle class and the upper classes were getting bigger uh, what what were their shares overall? Was the were the uh, middle class and lower class still larger overall? So overall, the upper middle class was twenty nine point four percent in twenty fourteen, and the rich were one point eight percent in twenty fourteen. While in nineteen seventy nine, the rich were point one percent, and the upper middle class were twelve point nine percent. And then the middle class in 20, 1979 was 38.8%, and in 2014 it's 32%. And then lower middle class, 23.9% in 1979, and 17.1% in 2014. Poor was 24.3% in 1979, and then 19.8% in 2014. Alright, thank you. That, that's yeah. all. I think a good thing to kind of add to this as we like discuss kind of the numbers surrounding the uh, middle and upper class is also look at the lower class because one of the Marxist, I guess, quote, prophecies that Marx put out is, oh, the rich are going to get richer and the poor are going to get poorer. Well, yeah, clearly the rich are getting richer, but are the poor really getting poorer? It's kind of a cliche, capitalist, like, defender cliche to bring this up, but I think it still needs to be said. Uh, I did just send a graph that y'all can probably add to the video um, about like the world population, the amount living in extreme poverty, and like 
it's a, it's a good graph. It shows that it's cutting down a whole lot. The UN started an international effort. It's like, okay, let's cut the amount of people living on a dollar a day in half by 2015. And then they met it by like 2012. Um, so the world is getting better in absolute material terms. Um, and, and that's just like the trend we're seeing. But like when it comes to the future of capitalism, I think there are a few I mean, I already said there's questions that need to be answered, but first and foremost, there's like the basic economics of it. Um, there's like, based on our understanding of economics, what does the world look like today? Is what we're doing right now sustainable? Um, and I don't know, I, I think I've had an all right economic education, but kind of what I've seen through like an Austrian lens is, oh, the economy is getting better. It looks like it's getting better, like under Trump, our uh, employment levels are, or our unemployment levels are at an all-time low. Like, it, it's looking pretty dandy. But then you kind of take like the Austrian framework, you lay it on there, and you think, oh, well, employment isn't the absolute measure of the economy because like employment can go up, but absolute capital in the economy, how much that is going up, or like capital per capita, is that going up? Capital is the ultimate measure of how we need to look at if an economy is growing. And I think that um, like in the wake of 2008, and since we're still recovering from that, even though it's like 11 years later, maybe not exactly recovering, but like the economy today is kind of springboarded off of what we built previously right after that crisis. Um, like what happened was the Fed just inserted a bunch of money into the economy, a massive stimulus package to kind of get the economy revving again and keep it going but what we've learned is that when the government does influences like that does stimulus packages like that what it does is it messes with the interest rates that entrepreneurs did like entrepreneurs use interest rates to gauge the time preference of consumers they gauge oh how far in the future do people want these goods how much should i invest um in like capital goods in the means of production in the earlier stages of like development of consumer products they ask themselves those questions and when the interest rates are changed they start investing um, based on a different pre time preference than the consumers actually have because if the interest rates are super low artificially entrepreneurs are going to put a bunch of money into construction equipment and manufacturing equipment because they think oh the these consumers want a lot more goods in the future but when the interest rates are super low that's not exactly the case because it's done by the government rather than a signal through the consumers um and the result of that is malinvestment there ends up being a lot of malinvestment in the economy and people don't really know like if their entrepreneurial ventures are gonna pay off and in the long run what we see is oh no these aren't gonna pay off and we're gonna have to liquidate these assets because they're not productive they're not bringing us profit and the result of that, this is the boom-bust cycle that the Austrian economists identified. Um, and I think that's what we're going to be looking at pretty soon because, oh yeah, the economy is going up right now, um, but the government did a large stimulus package and it's still been stimulating the economy, keeping interest rates low a couple times a year. Um, and that's inevitably going to lead to a downfall because there's going to be malinvestment that needs to be liquidated. So the government has two options going forward. They can kind of like keep this house of cards going. They can keep building it up, keep pushing the issue into the future, 
or we can let the economy adjust to the actual desires of the consumers. Because I think there's a serious asymmetry right now between what the consumers desire and where the investment of the economy is going. Oh man, don't even get me started on the Federal Reserve and interest rates. I think that whole system is just terrible. Terrible, terrible. Uh, but you, you made a lot of good points about... I totally agree the Federal Reserve. This is a problem, I think, in the current capitalist economy in the United States. I mean, currency is essentially now just worth what the government says it's worth. It's become an entire fiat currency, and is no longer backed by any real value with the gold standard. And as we saw with the abolition of the gold standard, inflation went up and interest rates went up. And that's because it's allowed the Federal Reserve so much power now that they don't have to go by a standard and have to back the U.S. dollar by some kind of actual real value. I think that's a huge problem with our system. But uh, I kind of do want to touch on another um, more in the mainstream dialogue. It's still not entirely mainstream because the candidate at foremost pushing this issue and pushing a solution to this issue, I previously mentioned them, um, Andrew Yang and him on automation and the idea that a lot of workers jobs are going to be automated and they're going to be out of a job and what are we going to do to help them and find them new careers and I know Andrew Yang's solution is the freedom dividend along with many other policies but that's his forefront policy uh, for form of universal basic income and I kind of want your guys' thoughts on it because uh, I see in right-wing circles specifically that, you know, that's where Yang is getting a lot of support and a lot of people, uh, a lot of Republicans who are frustrated with Donald Trump because they feel like he hasn't kept his promises uh, are moving to Yang because he's talking about issues of automation and solutions to that problem while... Yeah they view Donald Trump as just failing to keep many of his promises. So I kind of want your guys' opinion. Alright, yeah, so just really quickly on that, finishing up what I was going to say before I was um, interrupted. Um, uh, government interference in the economy in a reactive way, uh, I, I, I think is a, a lot more acceptable than government interference in a proactive way. So I, I would be very hesitant about Andrew Yang's universal basic income policy as much as I, I, I'm, I'm excited by it. I mean, $1,000 a month for somebody who, who doesn't have a job, who's going to be going to college, that's a, that's a really enticing offer. Um, it, but I, I also want to be skeptical about that because usually, it, you know, let's just uh, say hypothetically that the economy is doing uh, quite fine. And then the government comes by and they introduce laws, legislation, new rules that is going to affect the economy and they're, they're, they're meddling in it. Uh, you know, obviously the state of the economy is going to change. Is it going to get better or worse? That's the question. Um, but
you always have to be skeptical of it because the government has immense power and they could seriously screw things up there. I yeah. think these sorts of um, kind of socialistic systems of these safety nets are going to be what's inevitable because the way you see all these hyper-capitalist people, these members of these enormous corporations, they want these policies because that's what that's what keeps people not <laughs> in a revolution. Because if you when you have this weak sort of mushy capitalism where people are reliant on the state for welfare and their jobs aren't that great, you're either going to get communism or hypercapitalism, and one is way more likely than the other, so they would rather keep a system in place than have their entire house of cards come crashing down around them. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting point, but uh, while Andrew Yang's universal basic income is giving money to people, I don't know if I would necessarily call it welfare it's certainly money from the government um no. like, those sorts of systems right right no i i get i get what you mean um uh w when the government interferes in that kind of way you're kind of making people more reliant on the government that's that's a great point yeah you mind if i say a couple things on the uh like the deal of automation yeah no no ab absolutely all right cool so we talk about kind of the uh, the possibility of there being a large displacement of workers due to automation in the economy. That's pretty much Andrew Yang's whole platform and idea. But this is a kind of a economic philosophy that's been going on for a long time. The idea that oh, a certain technology is going to displace workers. What are we going to do with those workers? That happened most recently, big time, with the development of the internet. Like that's displaced a lot of the way the economy works and. Like it's automated different things that couldn't, um, that, that weren't exactly automated before. And we've seen that historically through the stuff like the industrial revolution and like the creation of factories where we're able to just mass produce, which leaves the jobs that we used to do kind of in the past. They're jobs that we aren't taking with us into the future. This has happened many, many times before. And uh, I think it was Bastia that talked about this scene and the unseen in the economy. When there's an economic development, we um, it, it's harder for us to see what the fruits of that are going to be in the future because they're really never before seen fruits. Um, so is this just going to be another case of, oh, we're automating, and then a whole new sector of the economy is going to open because of that that's going to be able to scoop up those workers? Um, and in the past, that's been what's happened. Like There's been some unforeseen part of the economy that opens up and it like lets all these previously displaced people get a job and continue being productive. Um, but what we have to ask ourselves is, are we just going to have faith in the fact that that's going to happen again with this new level of automation? Um, or is this one, is this one the one that's different? Is our time special? Is this sort of automation, the widespread displacement going to be so different than it was in the past that we need a sweeping change instead of just trusting the market? And I think a lot of people think so, like Andrew Yang definitely thinks so. Um, Charles Murray is a pretty important sociologist who also considers himself a libertarian, and he 
actually thinks that, oh, yeah, this time it is different. It's not going to be the same as it was in the past this time. Um, so we're going to need a different change. We can't just trust the market this time. Um, and when it gets down to it, like this is something that we can't really know. We have to ask ourselves, are we just going to put our trust in the market and think, oh, the market's going to be able to take care of this in the future? We just have to let this automation happen and the market in the long term is going to adjust. Maybe it will, but we can't know that for sure. What we also can't know, well, because we can't know that for sure, we don't know if this whole idea of the Andrew Yang negative income tax, freedom dividend, um, putting a safety net out for these to be displaced workers is a good idea. Is that the only way forward? We can't know. But we have to ask ourselves, are we going to take the precaution or are we going to put the trust in the market? And that's that's the biggest question that Andrew Yang raises to people who believe in capitalism, like libertarians and conservatives everywhere. That's it. Um, those are those are all pretty good points. Um, you're going to hear me say this over and over for the viewers, uh, probably every episode. It, it's it's impossible to predict the future. Nobody is the Oracle of Delphi. Um it's if you're making predictions of the future then that's that's all they are they're predictions it's not fact you do not know it for sure and so in this particular context uh i i i think that um the the the, the question isn't will the market provide jobs uh when when automation happens will new industries open up i think that's most definitely the case as history has shown and probably probably will be the case uh, but the question is how easy will it be for those workers who are displaced to transfer into those new jobs I, and I, I think that's the question people are more concerned about yeah. I, and to touch on that I think that I kind of agree that this might be a different form of you know where we're innovation is displacing workers i think it's going to be on a bit of a larger scale um i don't necessarily agree with yang's solution to that but i do think that what's going to happen is actually we're going to have a shift to more skilled workers i think a lot of low skilled worker jobs are going to end up getting replaced and we're going to be moving towards skilled workers now a lot of candidates in their addressing of how we're going to make the system better is uh at least on the democratic side is making college free and where i find andrew yang to be interesting <laughs> it's, it's on this free yeah, it's not really free because you pay taxes yeah <laughs> free free in the sense that those students don't pay for it but somebody always pays for it right but yeah, and I think Andrew Yang is interesting on this topic because he's not for just making college free, and he's actually somebody, he went on the Joe Rogan podcast and talked about this extensively, where he said he's a huge proponent of trade school, and I completely agree with him that Absolutely, I feel yeah. we have a crisis in the United States of young Americans going to college despite them not knowing where they want to go. And they end up getting a useless degree that they can't put towards getting a good job. And they end up spending all this money and making this investment that they can't make returns on. And that's what's led to the student loan crisis, among other things. And 
I'm a huge proponent of trade school and believe that you should be going to trade school. A good example is a welder. If you go to trade school for welding, your first job after your apprenticeship, you're easily making six figures. And there is a huge, huge shortage of welders. There's a huge shortage of quite a few high paying jobs that you would go to trade school for, but people aren't doing them. And this, I think, also plays into the economy as whole, is that we have a shortage of certain workers, but an overabundance of other workers. You know, we have one of the highest underemployment rates for college grads. I think it's almost at 50%, if I remember correctly, that, you know, almost 50% of college graduates are under, we have a job that's under their employment for the degree that they got in college. And I think education is a huge crisis for our, uh, for America. But I would also like to touch on Mason, you were like describing the freedom dividend and Yang's uh, universal basic income policy, and you described it as a negative income tax, but hey, that it's not really a negative income tax. I know point to a libertarian thinker and Chicago school thinker, um, Milton Friedman, and how he support, supported his policy. But I think a lot of people get muddled and don't realize that what Milton Friedman was proposing is a negative income tax, which is basically a tax subsidy for the poor and that and their taxes would be removed and instead they get money to help boost them out of being in the lower class. And this is very different to Yang's policy because it would replace all welfare programs in his dream system and i think yang is wrong on that on saying that he's got libertarian thinkers like milton friedman on his side on that subject but and i think the freedom dividend is more of an example of more keynesian policy than anything else yeah, and also just to jump on that real quick, I think that Yang is going to face uh, a lot of criticism from other Democrats because there's there's no way that his universal uh, basic income policy is going to replace welfare such as Medicare uh, because those are extremely expensive programs and uh, $1,000 a month is no way going to cover that. Well, and I know he gets uh, quite a bit even from me when he first started coming out about running for president and suggesting his policies he got a lot of support over the fact that he was one of the few candidates who supported a universal basic income system um, in recent years who didn't do an exorbitant amount that would be super heavily costly but his system still is pretty costly because it's basically because he makes no distinction based on how much money they're making. It's like kind of like a minimum wage in a sense uh, when it comes to that, that you have to be at least making 12000 a year as it's $1,000 a month. And to the effectiveness of how effective Yang's policy is going to be, uh, I have no idea because he has specifics on it, but I don't think they're specific enough to compare them to other universal basic income systems that exist in the world because there are very 
several other countries that also practice a universal basic income system. I know heavily concentrated in Europe, a lot of European countries have some form of universal basic income. So I question that I'm curious uh, what y'all's answer is. Uh, I'm sorry, I missed the last minute or so. Uh, I was interrupted by my mom. Um, uh, you're all good. I kind of want to pose a question to you all, um, because I kind of think that like we've, we've done a lot of discussion by Andrew Yang, but I'm curious what y'all's answers are. Um, because Andrew Yang has his like pragmatic way forward for the future of capitalism, but what instead do y'all think the future we should do to handle the future of capitalism and make sure it's good for everybody? Uh, I, I think there, there are uh, about three basic options here. What, we either end up with a dystopian government uh, where they may actually be able to establish uh, a command economy, like say they have China's technology, where you, you know now they're, now they're going into pre-crime. I don't know if you've heard this, but their facial recognition software has gotten so advanced that they can see facial cues. Uh, and they can try to predict crimes even, uh, which oh, is, it, it's terrifying. Uh, but if you're able to control society to such a degree, I think a command economy might actually now become more and more possible with technology. I, I think another uh, option is if, there's, if there ever becomes an absence of government, you might end up seeing real free markets. But if, you, if nothing like that happens, then I think you're just going to keep seeing the status quo and it's going to flow between more controlled and less controlled um and in terms of uh capitalism where i think it's going in the immediate future uh it's kind of hard to say because especially in the united states i think that we're very polarized right now and we're facing a lot of uh political upheaval things like that um I, i i i will say though that the corporation uh is not going away anytime soon you know uh private uh private means of production that's not going away anytime soon there's not going to be some kind of huge communist uprising uh i'm pretty sure that's here to stay something i think will have to be the future of capitalism if we want it to go well is a reduction in consumerism that type of just reaching for the next thing that people put out like iphone x's that's the thing that i've been thinking about for a while i hate that they exist seem bizarre to me i don't know why anyone would need them and that's an example i think of trying to get the new thing the new thing that isn't necessarily better but exists and there's a lot of hype built up around it and you want to go and achieve it because it's something it's like a video game it's like to something to be achieved it's this specialization of commodities and have a economy that makes people less miserable we need to in society more than governmentally to reduce that need of that want of though it might not be a reasonable or productive goal well yeah yeah, i mean that's a great point planned obsolescence uh which is you know what what apple famously does with their iphones 
you know that that's a huge contributing factor to the economy right now this this consumerism where people just keep on replacing uh, you know their devices with the newest and greatest the latest and greatest uh, that's that's going to be a huge problem in the future, especially environmentally. I mean, China recently announced that we don't want your trash. You keep it, America. And, and now we're like, oh, shit, where are we, what are we going to do with that? Where are we going to put it? Uh, so uh, I think that consumerism is going to be a bigger problem than just for capitalism and economics. That's going to be a it's going to be a much bigger problem in, in the future. Um, I think personally, when it comes to what's going what's happening moving forward i think we're coming to a crossroads um we talked about uh, talked extensively about andrew yang but as somebody who is very active in right-wing circles uh the people who i see supporting andrew yang the most from the far right tend to be the accelerationists the people who are trying to accelerate a collapse of the economy and society so they can use it as an opportunity to take control um a big debate in right-wing circles is is there political solutions to the problems facing the west you know are we a stuck in an internal system of handing power and just reversing the decisions of the last person in power which i think is a huge problem and i think we're coming to a crossroads with the fact that uh, Trump was elected president. I think the Tea Party is a sign of this. I think that uh, that we're having more openly socialist candidates is a sign of this. That we're coming to a crossroads in the American economy, and one one of two things is going to happen, or, or one of three three things actually. Either we're going to continue the status quo and continue to have a mixed economy that can't really sustain itself and is eventually going to collapse because I don't think our current economy and how it's structured can survive, especially when we look at the debt, when we look at the deficit, when we look at our GDP, when we look at the fact that there are stagnating wages and that there is a decrease in the middle class, even if there's an increase in the higher class, I think we have to look that those are signs that the current system isn't really working. And if we go in the status quo, I think that there's going to be a major collapse once the debt falls out and that one of the other two options at this crossroads could happen. So either we'll move further into a command economy and further left in our economy towards Keynesian policy and possibly even po Marxist policy because we see a lot of candidates moving to the left, I think, in the Democratic Party. Or we'll start seeing a further move to the right. A lot of people say Donald Trump is somebody who's helping do that. While I think that's partly true in a lot of the deregulation he's done, it's pretty common for a Republican president to do that. So you could say that's part of the status quo. But we could see, you know, a more, we could see this more on a state level. Because I think where a lot of the 
handing over of power for right wingers is going on is on a state and local level and that their target is the state and local level that they think they can change it more on that level and i think we're going to see more co competition between the states for economic policy to see what is doing best yeah that, that's a that's a that we're, we are definitely already seeing that, especially with marijuana. I mean, in California every day, there's there's a huge harvest day with the DEA and the FBI where they sweep in and they, they raid people's farms who are actually licensed by the state to grow uh, either, I don't know, uh, is it recreational in California or it's, just medical? It's, it's a bit recreational. Yeah. Oh, Right. Oh, yeah, it is so they're they're sweeping in and they're they you know they're they're taking all of these farmers' crops, whether whether they be for recreational or medicinal medicinal use. But in terms of economics, state and federal competition is becoming a is are is already becoming a, a huge thing. And I I think that harkens back to how the founders designed the original government of the economy, especially if you look back to the Articles of Confederation, which was more so of how they wanted more power to the state governments because they kind of did want a competition between the states. They gave a lot of power and jurisdiction to the states and didn't make it so the federal government mandated everything. But what we've been seeing mostly in the 20th century is a massive expansion, though, of the federal government in ceding of rights from state government to the federal government. And I think we're seeing a backlash from state governments. I think a good example of this, while it doesn't apply to economics as much, Mississippi passing a bill that nullifies all federal gun control legislation. And... I think this is one of the major steps that state governments are taking to try to stand their own ground against the federal government. And I think it's very interesting that moving forward, I think we're going to see a lot more battles between the federal and state government, both from left state governments and right state governments. We're gonna see get more more of Gettysburg, is what you're saying. I wouldn't say Gettysburg as much. I'm not saying like a full-on civil war, but I think we're gonna see more legal battles oh, in that okay. sense. I mean, you, another battles. good example of an issue is sanctuary cities, which you know is a huge issue right. in uh, in the United States and a major contention of state governments attempting to stand up to the federal government sanctuary cities uh i don't actually know much about those so i don't i don't know how much i can comment on that uh but essentially uh, the way i understand it the government set up uh, uh this program that says okay these cities have to take in so many uh refugees right i, I mean at a, at a federal level, if we're going to be taking in refugees, if we're going to be taking in, you know, people who, who are seeking political asylum or just seeking asylum, um, you do need a place to put them, right? Uh, but at the same well, time, you, you, have to, you, have, you have to consider the state's needs, 
or the, well, the I, towns or wanna, the cities. I don't want to hearken on this too much because it was more of a point about the state governments and what they're doing against the federal government. But right. And, and, and cities are really more just it's like local governments and state governments that say like in these areas um, they won't allow border patrol to deport illegal immigrants in the United States. It's less about refugees and more about oh oh, oh okay from deportation. Right. And, and that that's why I brought it up again because I didn't really understand how the battle is unfolding between the states and the federal government. I didn't really know uh, what was happening there. So states states are are trying to deport these people, and the federal government says no, you can't do that. No, no, no. It's the other way around. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I think there's actually a legal battle going to the Supreme Court on that issue, but All but right. more more back to. The economic standpoint and, the cap and capitalism itself, I think going back to consumerism, which we talked about before, I think that's a wonderful point because while I consider myself someone who's more free market and laissez-faire, I think I can still be a critic of capitalism as a system, and I think what one of capitalism's greatest failures is the creation of consumerism. And the fact that consumerism has taken over uh, much of the free market economy, where brand loyalty is a thing, and people are putting value on things that I don't personally think should really be valued. Though in an economy, really value is just determined by if someone will pay for it, and what they will are willing to give up in exchange for that item. But I think that you know consumerism is one of our biggest issues i mean going back to right-wing circles who tend to be the biggest defenders of capitalism and capitalism is usually associated with the right wing at least <laughs> increasingly so in recent years um what the biggest criticism comes from the right wing specifically the far right is consumerism and it's actually turning a lot of people on the far right against the system of capitalism. It's turning them to either more state-controlled economies or even socialism, which I think is, you know, ironic in a sense because that's more of a left, consider a left-wing ideology. But, um, and there's, there's kind of a shift within right-wing circles of becoming critics of capitalism and um, especially those who are supporting Andrew Yang while they st still if they're a supporter of Andrew Yang they're probably still a supporter of capitalism because Andrew Yang reports himself as a supporter of capitalism and someone who wants to save it quote-unquote um, they become more critical of it and they specifically touch on those issues of consumerism and automation, which are huge problems for them. Um, I know a big right-wing YouTuber, 179L, um, recently did a video on Andrew Yang, and he showed a shift from more libertarian economics towards uh, more Keynesian policy in how he addressed his video on Andrew Yang and he became more critical 
radical of capitalism than I think he's ever been, which is very interesting because a lot of people considered him a big proponent of capitalism. So I think it's just interesting to see the shift because of these issues. And I think that in the future, we're going to see either people move towards more free market or they're going to move towards more Keynesian and Marxist economic policy. Yeah, and I don't know if that's really the only thing that's uh, you know driving people away from capitalism. Uh, I think that there's a general misunderstanding uh, of what capitalism is uh, at, at, in some in some cases. Uh, but touching on you know where we left things off at the first episode, uh, the the concept of power, uh, who has power in our lives, and it's it's certainly not just the government. And I think people are, are very upset uh, recently with the way they've been treated by corporations, whether it's EA, you know, uh, putting uh, gambling systems in their video games, or whether it's uh, a huge drug company, you know, making uh, life-saving drugs incredibly expensive just because they can, because they have a, a patent on it, right? And I think that that's a huge thing that's driving people more towards the left now is because these uh, these huge corporate entities are 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 basically just abusing their power, and people do not appreciate that whatsoever. So in the future, going forward, I think that if we if we want to maintain capitalism, or at least you know keep uh, our society from drifting off towards uh, more and more left, more and more dystopian uh, economic structures, then we really, really do have to address how much power uh, the the private sector can have, um, because that that is going to be uh, a huge factor, I think. And I, I think that's largely true. I think uh, a lot of people are becoming critical corporations. Um, I think going back to the right wing, and I know we've touched a lot on the right wing, or at least I have. Um, and I think it's important because they're historically they've been the biggest defenders of the capitalist economy and have been more for a laissez-faire capitalist system generally generally um but you know even looking at corporations like facebook and twitter and the censorship of more right-leaning opinions and mm -hmm. even even some left-wing opinions admittedly um mostly those who are anti-war but i think the treatment of them has started to move them from you know, free market capitalism, entirely free market capitalism policy, um, because they see it as a natural monopoly that, uh, you know, can't, there's no way to compete with that, and there's just no alternatives. Oh, man. Go to. <coughs> and, don't and don't you're really start on that. I'll, I'll go on a rant yeah. about that. You're seeing, well, and you're seeing an increase of right-wingers who traditionally used who you know, used to be entirely free market capitalism or at least more free market capitalism 
who are saying that we should regulate these companies and that we should impose like regulation that they can't censor people right. based on political opinions. So Carlson comes to mind mm-hmm. uh, when thinking about that. So I'm just I'm just gonna put this out there as somebody who is so libertarian in terms of authoritarian versus libertarian, so libertarian that I'm I'm not even on the on the compass on the map anymore. Um, I wholeheartedly support legislation to regulate uh, companies like Google and Facebook and YouTube because it's just so ridiculous the argument that they're a private company that they can do whatever the heck they want. Uh, it, it's ridiculous because it, it is it's not a natural monopoly but it, it has essentially become a monopoly not in terms of platform there are other platforms out there but in terms of viewership they have a monopoly on on people they have a monopoly on viewership everybody is on their platform and so it, it really needs to be treated more as a public utility than as a private company at, at this point because everybody is on it uh, and in, a, in terms of censorship, in terms of the economy, I think that absolutely needs to happen. And I don't think that's, um, you know, uh, going further left. I think that's actually protecting individual rights, um, as, especially, you know, with what they do with their money. Because uh, a YouTube, uh, for example, that's that that's a billion billion many billions of dollars that that's a huge industry especially uh with with uh, advertisements right and not even uh mentioning all the all the patreon all the uh special projects all the charities uh that are that revolve around youtube um that that's a that's a lot of money and when this uh when people have power over that whether it's the government or these these corporate leaders uh, that's a huge problem. I think that's that's a that's a huge problem for capitalism. That's a huge problem for our liberties. Uh, that's a huge problem for our society. And uh, I'm interested in either Ellie or Mason's opinion on this because I know you guys are pretty staunch opposers to any regulation on these companies. Um, you know, coming from the Austrian school of economics, so I kind of want your guys' opinion on what Joe said. Yeah, yeah, yeah you guys, you guys can be, you guys can be uh, as as critical as you want. You know, just uh, I, you know, just te- tear me apart. Go at it. Maybe I'm a little harsh, but I, I feel like if if you don't like something, change it. If you don't like it, change it. If because Twitter has a habit of censoring people that they don't like politically, but then other platforms open up. We have Gab, we have other things, I assume. It's, I think, this sort of shutting down and reopening of different places of congregation on the internet is the natural progression of things. Because we had AOL, that died. MySpace, that died. Facebook, unless you're a boomer, that's on its last, on its last leg. It's, it's about to get lowered into the grave. We have, we have this natural progression in style and what's out of style, and I think this 
political censorship is ultimately going to throw Instagram, Twitter, all of these, all of these things out of style. Well, I, I mean that's an interesting point. If we if we look just specifically at uh, YouTube again, though, there aren't many uh, huge competitors to YouTube. Um, I, I I know for a fact that several YouTubers, such as Computing Forever, I I can't remember his name for the life of me. I'm I'm terrible with names, but you know they they've started moving to other sites definitely for sure. But in terms of uh, viewership, I, I, how long is it going to take for, uh, the viewership to transition to these other sites? Uh, quite frankly, uh, since the numbers of people on these alternative sites, on these alternative platforms are so small, I'm inclined to say that they, they do indeed have a monopoly on viewership. Um, and as an alt-centrist, you, you know, what, what I like to say is that what makes it an alternative uh, to centrism, uh, a more radical approach, is that I want things done, I want things changed sooner, much sooner rather than later. And so the, the time frame of how long it's going to take for people to change things on their own, um, that, that's, that's of concern to me. Because in the meantime, what you're losing out on is all of these people who are who are being censored? You're losing out on the free exchange uh, of ideas, and that's a huge problem to me. Mm -hmm. I also think a problem with my approach is that you get a division in the left and the right. You have you have the left wingers on, which will be the only ones that remain on YouTube, and you have all the right-wingers are people with non-left-wing opinions flocking to, like, Vidme, or things like that, you, you'll you get a hyper-echo chamber. It's like you'll have separate nations with only one opinion, and you'll, you'll get radicalization from that, because if you've been on Gab, there's this YouTuber, Sinatra says, it's awful, um, Gab is way more radical than anything I would ever see anyone of a similar political ideology say on Twitter, because you're allowed to just run rampant, and leftists on Twitter are allowed to just run rampant, and you have these just separation of you don't think people think differently than you anymore. For a while, yeah. I, yeah. I completely forgot people believed in the wage gap unironically. I forgot that was a thing that people actually believed in, and that isn't a good thing. We should always be aware of other opinions, and I think the monopolization and the need to go to different platforms will ultimately increase that. Right, and um, you know that already happens with uh, algorithms and, and such. But um, uh, you're right that that's going to become an even bigger problem if people splinter and they they move on to uh, you know uh, more and more separate uh, groups and, and sites. It's going to become a much bigger problem too, and I think that we definitely need to uh, look at ways where we can increase dialogue in the future and bring people who disagree together.
that that's going to be uh, a big problem going forward, whether whether or not we impose uh, legislation on these companies or whether we uh, uh, do it do it ourselves, change the system ourselves. Uh, that's going to probably be a problem either way. So I I I'm in absolute agreement with that. Um. So I I do have one last. Uh, thing in my notes to say about the future of capitalism and and this is this gets more philosophical than anything else uh, oh boy philosophy yeah yeah so I, I think that black markets and free markets and regulated markets really reveal a lot about um, uh, about the human condition about psychology sociology and so especially with um, black markets it's really interesting because black markets are have always existed. Uh, people want to get their hands on things, regardless of whether or not government says, no, you can't have that, or no, you can't have that unless you pay uh, this tax for it, right? Uh, so it's very clear and evident that people do want to buy things, but I don't think that anything is universal either because there are people who, who call for, um, you know, banning outlawing of, of certain goods such as you know in the u.s today the biggest one is firearms people want to bail the uh ban sorry ban the sale of certain types of firearms whether they're um concealable firearms assault rifles etc um and i'm interested to, to hear your guys's thoughts on that how does that play into what capitalism is and what is really more reflective of human nature? Do people want things to be banned, or do people want a more free market system? And I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say about that. You cut out for a little while there. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure what I cut, where I cut out, so I don't know um, what you missed. I, mean, I can try to take a stab at the answer. Because it's it's kind of a difficult question, um, like maybe maybe not because it's like hard and complex, but just because it's not something I know a ton about. Um, like it's a, it, it's hard to answer what people actually want, and we kind of have to look at like what that's like in the status quo. Like, do people in modern society today politically want this or that? Um, but when it gets down to it, like people have better lives when they have more choices. Like the, the just inherently if you have more choices there's more things you can do there's more things you can spend money on more ways you can make money um more paths to happiness so in a black market only exists as long as there's government regulation and i think like deep down what people truly want is to be able to make the decisions for their own lives the key to a good life is living a responsible life where you're able to discern between oh this product is good for me oh this product is bad for me um and I mean, if I can get this like super philosophical for a second here, at the very end of the myth of Sisyphus um, by Albert Camus, there's a good quote that I really like. Um, which quote is, um, give me like two seconds to pull up. Here we go. The struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. Um, he also says that one always finds one's burden again. Um, and I think this ties into like the greater question of like government protection government social security um like the security nets that we talk about um all of that everything government does is trying to take the responsibility away from the individual and outsource it 
to the state and i think that's a very bad idea so i think that like when it comes to black markets it's a bad idea to take away the responsibility of people to be wise consumers like that's part of what living life is the struggle of discovering what's good for you and what's not good for you and the government definitely cannot make that decision for everybody um it can really i mean everybody has a different set of values they have different things that they want they have different things that they don't want the government it's literally impossible for the government to go through the values of everybody and decide what they want and what they don't want. It's, um, it's an absurd proposition that the government can make these decisions for people. Um, so when it gets down to it, people want to be free and it's good for them that they get the responsibility that comes with being a free individual officer. Alright, so just to play devil's advocate a little bit, um, uh, I'm going to ask you this question. What do you think about addictive substances where uh, people's free will, it, it's, it's kind of uh, subdued. It's kind of uh, not, not really present because they become addicted to this substance and, and that affects uh, uh, you know, what, what they want to purchase, what they want to consume, whether it's in a free market or a black market. What would, would you say about this? Does the government have business in regulating addictive substances? I would so, say... I you're gonna go ahead, Ellie. Um, they, they made unless they were hooked on it by someone else. They made they uh, presumably knew that whatever substance it was is addictive and made the first choice to hook themselves on it. And I think the government has absolutely no business in regulating people's poor decisions. And they may not even be poor decisions. I know for me, like. Drugs scare me. I'm, I'm such a, such a drug wimp. It's it's hilarious. But I would never go and say, you know, Mr. Joe Schmo, you you shouldn't be allowed to. I don't know, smoke weed. Bad for you. I don't need to. I don't need to be integrate myself into the nanny state and tell people how to act regardless of whether or not I personally believe it's harmful because you know some other person may not have such an adverse to certain substances as I do they yeah. may enjoy it or not particularly care that it's addictive or any other number of reasons why they might choose to do it that I don't think is any of my business all right um so well, can I respond to your kind of... Uh, yeah, absolutely, and then I have one more clarifying question after that, but absolutely, go ahead. You got it. Well, there's a few different, um, like, I guess, like, three different ways I'm going to answer this question. The first is that, well, the government has done an absolutely horrendous job of regulating that in the first place. We're in the midst of a massive opioid epidemic in the United States right now, and the government has done almost nothing to solve that. They've done more to propagate it through, like, their allowance of, uh, I just recently wrote an article um, how they've kind of like created a system that is allowing pharmaceutical companies to bribe doctors so that they'll prescribe the medications that will get the patients hooked and then just more money is made by these pharmaceutical companies. This is the system that the government has established both by cutting the drug market off from foreign markets, from foreignly approved drugs, and, um, God, there was one other thing. Um, oh yeah, and the like long and complicated FDA approval process. Like that's the first part of the answer to the question. 
Um, the second part of the answer to the question is, yeah, it's uh, Ellie kind of said it perfectly. Like, it's still your responsibility not to deal with these substances. And like, the government definitely isn't helping. They're just making the problem worse. So taking the government out of the equation, like, and having people decide for themselves, um, it, it puts a larger degree of responsibility on communities and church members and like uh, these super uh, community-based organizations that exist. Like they're the ones that are responsible for helping people to live a good life. And at the same time, it puts more responsibility on the individual. Um, the government's not gonna like force you to stop now. You have to come to that decision yourself. Um, but the final, the, the final part of my response is that like uh, Aldous Huxley in Brave New World talked a lot, but like you kind of see the contrast between like 1984 and Brave New World. In 1984, Orwell describes more of like a traditional hegemonic, like the government is taking very explicit control over the entire population. But in the case of um, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, like the way that the government takes control is far more insidious than the situation uh, described in 1984 because what they're doing is they're getting people addicted. Um, and we see this today. I, I wrote an article about this as well. Was Aldous Huxley a libertarian? And I kind of interrogate the different um, societal phenomena that he describes in both Brave New World and Brave New World Re Revisited. Like addiction is a tool that can be used by the government and corporations and every tool made by a social media company um, like a marketing tool to get more people to be enticed by their product can be used by the government and vice versa government tools for enticing people and like mass control are also used by corporations to get more people um, to buy their products so like we see that the government is ultimately um, like like you, you take the devil's advocate position should the government not help these people to overcome their addictions well no and they aren't they're making it worse Okay, um, you're definitely right that the FDA has a very long and difficult approval process, but uh, nowadays most of the drugs are, are grandfathered in, which is a problem too, uh, and I think that you know that's something that needs to be reconciled. Uh, both of those are, are problems. Um, but just my, my last clarifying question, does the government have any business in regulating drugs when it comes to a situation where it affects either the liberty or the security of others, if it uh, if it is a you know a physical threat to others, if if they will be injured because of somebody else's drug use, does the government then have business in regulating either the sale of uh, drugs or the use of drugs? Right. Well, I'm an anarchist, so I don't really think the government has business in anything. Yeah. For the sake of answering the question, um, if we do have a government that's going to function as a government should, they're there to protect the rights of the individuals that live in the society that they're protecting. That being said, um, the problem itself is not like, oh, this person uh, took PCP and now they're like cannibalizing people. Like the crime is the cannibalizing people, not the PCP. Exactly. Um, and I think we should stay away from the trap of pharmacological determinism. Every drug doesn't just make one person do one thing. Like it's not like like con we, we know very little about drugs, but what we do know is that you're not determined to do one thing or another um, once you take some sort of substance. So the government shouldn't necessarily 
um, target those substances. Rather, they should target the actions. Like, if we're going to have a government that protects the rights of individuals, protecting the rights of individuals includes protecting the rights to affect your own consciousness in whatever way you uh, choose and put whatever in your body that you choose. But that also protects the rights of others to not be harmed and stolen from, which is where the government should step in. So they shouldn't go after, like, this is one instance where I don't think the government should go after um, what could be seen as the cause because it's not necessarily the cause. They should be purely going after the symptoms of the rights violations coming from, or the possible rights violations coming from people that go insane. All right. Thank you for letting me play devil's advocate. I, I'm, mo I'm mostly in agreement with the, what you said, but thank you for clarifying your position. Since we're since we're into that debate of uh, drugs and the black markets, I think something that we didn't touch in the feudalism. I kind of want to talk about the role of the internet, and specifically, I want to talk about the Silk Road and Ross Ulbricht. Oh no! What what? Yeah. How does this play into the future of capitalism? All how right. does online yeah. black markets and a more open internet where it's much easier to trade and sell goods how does this play into the future of capitalism moving forward and that's that's a great uh that's a great way uh to kind of uh end this episode i think and i i think after that discussion we'll probably have to give our uh our closing statements but I, i'd love to have that discussion absolutely so Peyton, yeah. uh, you you definitely had some things to say about that. So uh, why don't you go first? Uh, my my personal belief is that, um, and and I think there have been people who have influenced me recently on this is that um, there are going to be people who are on the side of more free market capitalism, who are going to if the government is going to continue either the status quo or move more Keynesian and even Marxist policy, what they're going to do is they're going to turn to the internet and try to bypass the government as a whole in their economic uh, in their economic activities. I think we're seeing this with cryptocurrency, um, you know, money that is not fiat, that is, you know, but being used and exchanged on online circles, especially libertarian circles, and I think that these online black markets and places like the Silk Road, and then as well Bit uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are going to play a huge role in subversion of the the mainstream economy, and that people are going to practice free are going to be able to practice free market principles even though our government is moving towards more Keynesian and Marxist policy, or even just continuing the current status quo, which I would say is somewhere in between the Keynesian school of thought and the Chicago school of thought. Yeah, I, I, um... you mind if I answer? Cool, okay. So um, when we talk about like things like the Silk Road, these kind of more radical libertarian avenues towards a freer world. I actually wrote an article about this a while ago, kind of towards Thanksgiving last year, called a WikiLeaks for Everything. And the title is kind of a parody off of like, oh, there's an Uber for this, an Uber for that. Um, what if we have like a, a WikiLeaks for this, a WikiLeaks for that? And essentially the thesis of the article 
is that if we want a freer society, what we need is to create the blueprints of anarchy so that they will never be able to be taken away. Um, we, like, we can't exactly... This gets a little complicated to explain, but it's more difficult to um, just make, like, a society... Or, okay, wait, let, let me go back a little bit. Um, it's more difficult to just be like, oh, let's vote someone into office. Let's, like, vote Gary Johnson, vote Ron Paul. Suddenly, there'll be politicians that are going to give us, like, the new libertarian utopia. No, that's not going to work. The system is specifically designed to prevent that from happening. Rather, what we need is more things like WikiLeaks, more things like Bitcoin, more things like the Silk Road, more things like the Ghost Gun. Because what these are, if they're all very special things. They're systems that can be replicated in the future. And we've discovered that these systems can exist. And once they can exist, they're completely outside the hands of the state. There is no government control over these. So what we need to do is we need to create spheres of influence in which the government cannot reach their hands. And that is the key to a freer world. So yeah, I think that stuff like uh, the Silk Road is the way to a more um, a more healthy capitalism, a more, more free world, a world where everybody's able to live better. Mm -hmm. Something I think is interesting about the, these online black markets is that they're very risky. What happened to Ross Albright is terrifying. I think that it's, it was meant to be terrifying. Two life sentences plus 40 years for letting people sell drugs. Oh no, terrible thing. It, it, it was meant to scare people, and I think because the internet is, it's, it's an arms race between what's trackable and what isn't. People trying to make themselves less detectable, the trying to detect more people. It, you're, if a drug deal between two friends isn't going to get found out by the police in any normal scenario. But if you're over text and the government is really concerned about stealing habits, they're going to be able to find you very easily. That is what I think will keep a lot of people away from that avenue, is the amount of risk involved. That's, um, that's an excellent point, and it, it may even be grounds for an entirely, uh, an entire... Uh, podcast episode dedicated to a topic such as uh, the internet, uh, internet security, internet markets, um, and it, while while it's I I think a great idea in principle, in reality, you're not safe on the internet. You're not even safe on the dark web. Uh, no matter how how you structure the internet, it's always going to be grounded in. Um, the real world because you know the all these uh website servers are that they're they are they are in the real world and as <laughs> i mean that's uh that's something really important to keep in mind because uh as long as as long as that is the case and as long as we uh you know have the structure of the internet the way it is governments can easily very easily just you know find out what server something is happening on or uh, where the traffic is going and e even if it's a VPN they can just you know follow follow the chain 
and they can get uh, FISA court orders. Uh, they can get all, they can get all of the information that they want. Uh, so while it's a great idea in principle, it uh, in um, in execution, we really need to take a look at how we can make that uh, uh, much more practical, because definitely the security aspect of it and the risk of it is certainly keeping people away. Uh, and on what happened to Ross Albright, that is really sad because the way that I understand it is the FBI came to him and they said, look, you have to give us access to your website, your servers. Uh, we're going to shut this down. This is illegal. Um, we're, we're in control now, basically. And what he told them is, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I have locked myself out of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the website because I want it to be a free market. Uh, so then the FBI basically punished him for that. Uh, and I, I think he kind of screwed himself over because he was, he was adver I think I'm pretty sure he was advertising the Silk Road uh, while he was in court. Um, it's just a really sad situation what happened there. And it's been shown time and time again what the government can do to you if they want to get you. It doesn't matter if you have a great defense attorney. You're screwed. If the government, especially the federal government, if they have their eyes set on you, you're most definitely screwed. It happened to, uh, I, I mean, if, if Edward Snowden never comes back, it's going to happen to him. People have called for the death penalty for him. Oh, uh, it, it happened to Jeremy Hammond. It happened to Aaron Schwartz. Aaron Schwartz, that's a whole other case. And uh, I encourage everybody listening to go look into what happened to Aaron Schwartz because that is just a tragedy. Um, it's so... I, I guess I guess w what I'm saying about this is that there there comes a lot of risk with creating these structures of free markets and and creating this um, infrastructure for anarchy. In the beginning, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be uh, uh, certainly targeted by world governments, and there's gonna there's gonna be a lot of pain. Um, and the question is. I guess how do you create these structures safely uh, or is it worth the cost and, uh, you know I don't know I don't know I don't have all the answers I think what would convince more people of at least becoming more anti-state than they are now is publicizing more of these stories because ultimately what solidified my um, just my want for the overhaul of the government was hearing the Ross Albright story and how unjustified the government was in ruining this man's life who did nothing wrong. What? To keep I think I totally out. agree that uh, uh, you know, they completely ruined the Ross Albright's uh, life sure. and I think there are a lot of people who are doing a lot in exposing the state, but there are people who don't want to admit that, you know, our governments or governments in general are could be extremely harmful to their populations they claim to protect. And I think they retaliate against the people who resist. And I think the people who are resisting are people like Edward Snowden 
like Ross Ulbrich and people like Julian Assange. And I think that this plays into the future of capitalism is, is how is capitalism really going to survive if there are people who are not skeptical of the government? Because the whole point of having a capitalist system is that you trust private individuals more than you trust the governmental body. And I think if we have less trust in our private individuals than we do our government, we're going to naturally see a shift to more government intervention in the economy and move closer to command economy and more towards Keynesian ideas and Marxist ideas. All right. Um, so let's move into closing statements then. Um, does anybody volunteer to go first? Yeah, I can go first. Um, I guess my closing statement is just like, we need to have an open mind when it comes to the future of capitalism um, because there's a lot of unanswered questions and there's probably gonna be some pain in answering these questions and everybody's gonna have a different opinion on answering these questions, whether it's automation and technology, um, whether it's like the stratification of wealth in society or whether it's climate change. Like these are new phenomena that, we're, that we've maybe dealt with in some form in the past, but we've never dealt with them like we are today in the past. Um, so I just urge everybody to keep an open mind and look for new and innovative solutions to these issues if we're going to have a society that benefits everybody. Well, very well said. Um, Thank you. Keeping an open mind is is very very important, um, and it's it's something that we are trying to promote with this podcast and with this channel. All centrism. Absolutely. Uh, so, who would like to go next? Volunteers, volunteers, tribute somebody. I can go. All right. I would- moving forward in capitalism we have to we have to not be afraid of very quick very radical change i think there's a a movement away from kind of um more fringe ideas that maybe are well reasoned but are very different from what's accepted now that people are because it would overhaul their life a lot. It would, it would change a lot of the current status quo more beneficial for the most amount of people. And I think, um, somewhat, somewhat, uh, this, we can't, we can't try to keep center anymore. We have to do what works. We have to do what is going to be best and most effective for the most people and cause the least amount of pain. Uh, yes, very well said. Um, I, I think that everybody in their own way, whether we agree or disagree with them, I, I, I believe certainly that, it, especially in politics, everybody has the best intentions of people in mind, even if we don't necessarily understand 
their opinions or where they come from or how they justify it. Uh, I, I do believe that everybody wants the best for everybody else. And I, I, I certainly agree that um, that needs to be our priority. We, we definitely need to move uh, forward in a way um, that is beneficial to everybody. Whether it's centrist, whether it's uh, uh, um, liberal, whether it's conservative, uh, we need to do what's in the best interest of everybody, and I think that we need to come together on, on some issues. Um, so, Peyton, uh, would, are you ready to do your closing statement, or do you want me to go first? Uh, you can go first. Okay. So, I, I mean, I, I started this episode, and I didn't really have many strong opinions. I, I didn't know where I would end up. I, I, I kind of started this episode with the mindset that I was going to listen to everybody else and see what they have to say. So I, I, I didn't come in here with any conclusions about anything, really. Um, I, I've certainly been pondering my definition of capitalism, how practical, how real it is, and um, you know what, what everybody else has said about it throughout the episode. And I, I think the biggest thing that I can take away from this uh, in the end, the biggest thing that I can say about this is that capitalism, as it exists in America today, there are problems with our economic system that we need to fix. And I, I think most people here are in agreement that the government is not going to do a great job fixing it. Uh, certainly, they may be able to help in certain aspects. Um, Restoring individual liberties is, is a great way to go about that. Uh, I, but I think the best way that we can preserve what we've all said we like about capitalism and what we want about capitalism in the future is uh, by taking direct action, uh, which, which I am always supportive of, you know. Uh, ju and just a quick disclaimer, I, I am not a proponent of the ends justify the means. I think that we need to go about this not in an accelerationist way, but in a, a very rational, um, productive way. As Ellie said, we, we need to do certainly what's best for everybody, but we need to keep in mind how we're doing it, I think. Um, so so it, my principal conclusion is that there are problems um, and we need to fix them ourselves. And I would encourage everybody to talk to the people, especially those who you disagree with, and really um, come to an understanding, realize that you both want the same thing. And really, I, I don't have the answers. So all of us together, I think that we need to figure out uh, a way to understand each other and create solutions. And that's all I have to say. All right. Thank you for that, and uh, I'll move into what I have to say to wrap this up, our topic, which is the future of capitalism. Um, what I think capitalism and the future of it is going to be is I really do think that we're coming to a crossroads in our economy and our society in general. And I think we have several paths moving forward, 
And I think those paths are going to determine the future of capitalism, but not only that future of just capitalism, but the future of Western society, the future of our culture in general. And I think where we see a lot of underlying problems with capitalism is consumerism. We see some problems of corruption within a capitalist system, specifically mixed economies. And we have an imbalance of power within our economy. And I think moving forward that we need to, even if we believe in free market, if we believe in capitalism, we need to be skeptical of parts of it. And we need to be prepared for any change that may come our way. And I won't conceal that I consider myself a paleo-libertarian. I'm a big fan of Hans Hermann Hoppe. I'm a big fan of many Austrian thinkers. But I think we also have to be critical of the things we believe in. And we have to look at things from an objective standpoint. And I think moving forward that the key to solving the problems with our economy is going to be transforming our education to move towards preparing ourselves for the massive changes that will happen to our society as I will see that we'll probably transition from more low-skilled workers to more skilled workers within the economy as lower skilled jobs get replaced by automation um, and I think we also need to be moving towards Austrian economics personally but I think the most important thing is that we need to not lose sight of our culture and we need to not lose sight of what we are because I think the biggest problem that comes from capitalism in general is its effect on culture and the creation of consumerism and while I personally believe drugs are harmful to people I do believe they should be legal but I think we have to become in skeptical and be prepared to help these people through their problems and not completely turn a blind eye when it comes to their bad decisions. I do think people should face consequences for their actions, but I don't think we as a society should just turn a blind eye in the name of our principles. But I'm not saying and I'm not advocating for any government intervention. I'm advocating on an individual level. I think we need to better ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so in conclusion, what this all means is that we need to physically remove communists. That is all. <laughs> <laughs> Send them all to the gulags. <laughs> Give them a taste of their own medicine. <laughs> yeah, very well said, Peyton. Um, thank you so much to our, our guest speakers, Ellie and Mason, for being here. You've been phenomenal guests. Uh, this is it's we've had great discussions I, I think so uh, you know b before we sign off just like to give you uh, you both uh, the last words any you know burning statements quotes you want to say thank you uh, for having us yeah that was my burning statement thank you <laughs> all right thank no you thank thank you so much for being here um, and thank you for uh, thank you to the viewers for tuning in once again uh, this has been the second episode of our podcast, and hopefully we'll see you soon for episode three on political polar polarization 
radicalization and violence. Thank you. And, and uh, uh, we wanna, oh. and we want to quickly apologize for the delay for episode yep. two. Uh, we've been very busy, uh, but as this school year is wrapping up, hopefully we'll be able to pump out episodes faster, and uh, there won't be much as a delay. So uh, keep an eye out for new episodes, and as always, thank you for watching, and have a wonderful time. Yes, thank you for watching, and cut. Wait. I'm an idiot. I, I, ended, I left the call instead of pressing stop recording. <laughs>